Father, we recognize this whole life is kind of scary, and and we'd like our little safe places and all that, but uh, we pray you'd help us to be bold, that we know that we can trust in you, that you have our back, that you are the creator of the universe, and that you love us, and so we can step out. It's okay. Help us. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to help people find you because you're so awesome, so wonderful. You've been so good to us, and we want to share this goodness. So use us. And we, we look at this passage of Scripture, and we see the and think about the idea of you coming back, Jesus, and, and it just thrills our souls. But we want to be prepared, and we want to help others find you before this time comes. So equip us today from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 9. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we are going through Revelation verse by verse. And we are at this section, this last section. I'm kind of almost drawing it out. You know, I probably could have done this all in one message, but then we would have missed a whole lot of stuff. So this is going to be part one of three messages. Jesus is coming soon, so get ready as we will walk through this last section they call the epilogue of the book of Revelation. Have you ever been unprepared? Watch watch this video here. Watch this. Now, now, now he wasn't prepared, was he, for, for the ice on his driveway? You know, it's a good thing that mailbox was there. Otherwise, the cars might have, who knows. But, uh, yeah, we're, we, maybe you forgot something was coming up. And so you were unprepared for it. Or, or maybe you just didn't care. Something was coming up and you didn't prepare for it. I'm a professor at the University of Northwestern, and I have some students, too many students, who, you know, I'll have a test or a paper due. And, you know, this is the night before. They decide, oh, I should start writing that paper. You know, that's, that's that idea of not, maybe not even caring about being prepared. Well, God wrote the book of Revelation so that we would be prepared. These are things that are coming up sometime in the future, and he wants us to be prepared. He doesn't want us to get caught off guard. And that's good. That's nice of him. So let's read our passage. Revelation 22, 6 through 9. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. 
So, as we're looking at this, what does he mean by Jesus is coming soon? And how are we supposed to get ready? So, let's walk through that. The first question, what does he mean by Jesus is coming soon? Because if you notice here, he says it here in verse 6, what things must soon take place. Verse 7, look, I'm coming soon. If we skip, remember this whole section is the epilogue. Look at verse 10, uh, at the end of verse 10, because the time is near. Look at verse 12. Look, I'm coming soon. Verse 20 he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And remember, he wrote this 2,000 years ago, right? And, and this is the ending. This is how he ended it. But this is also how he started the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. He says... Revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Look at verse 3. He says, the time is near. Look at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him. Now, that doesn't say soon or anything like that, but this is still what he's talking about, him coming back. And then verse 20, which I think helps us Actually, verse 19, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That kind of sets the stage of what the whole book of Revelation is talking about. I'm going to come back to that verse, but this idea that he's coming soon seems to be prevalent here, especially at the beginning, especially at the end. What is he talking about? You know, there are people who predict dates for when Jesus is coming back. Right, uh, Edgar Wissenant wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why He's Coming Back in 1988. Now, he didn't just write that book. He, he wrote that before it happened, okay? He predicted September between September 11th through the 13th, he would come back sometime that time in 1988. Another guy, Harold Camping, who actually owns several Christian radio stations throughout the country. This guy, Harold Camping, uh, wrote that he was coming back May 21st, 2011. And then when it, after May 21st, what happened and when? It's, he actually reported that he was absolutely shocked that he didn't come back. And I'm absolutely shocked that he was absolutely shocked. <laughs> because... Jesus said no one knows the day or hours. I, mean, I, I don't know. It's, but this is what happens. And so you have this group here. Maybe they're a little full of frenzy. But then there's others who maybe in the opposite realm, they say, oh, it's been people been saying that for years and years and years, so nobody can know at all anything about this thing. But then why did he write the book? So there's got to be some medium ground in there. Now, there are three major theological views on how to interpret the whole book of Revelation in light of this idea that he's, these verses that say he's coming soon. You have what's called the preterists, okay? That's the, the, those who believe that everything was going to happen in the first century, 
And they say because it says soon, that meant soon, so that would be the first century. They also believe that about Matthew 24. Now, Jesus didn't come back in the first century, yet there's still a lot of preterists who hold to this view. So go figure. Okay, I don't think that one's right. But then another group called the idealists. Now, they see the book of Revelation more as here is how Christians can live in the midst of time if you're going through persecution, struggles, or difficulties in life. And so this wasn't meant to speak of the future, but it was meant to help all Christians at all times. Now, I do think there's some truth to that. But I think as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we have seen the futurist view. That is, from chapter 4 on, he is referring to the end times, the very last seven years of the world, and that's how we are to best understand this, okay? So in light of that, then, three truths we can take away from these things, okay? The first one, the imminent expectancy at all times is healthy. When people say the church has always believed it was living in the very end of time. Now, that's technically not true. Only when the church was on fire did it believe that it was living in the end and Jesus was going to come back soon. Which, by the way, I think that seems to be a healthy attitude to believe he could come back any moment. Let's be ready. And so when people say, oh, you know, they've been saying that for years and years and years. They're really saying, at least some of them, and I don't want to have to bother with it. Then what did he give us the book for? Okay? So it seems to me, no, it's actually healthy to believe he could come back any time. And I think it is in our lifetime. That seems to be when the church was healthiest, it embraced that kind of an attitude. And so I think that's good. Revelation is beneficial to everyone, and so the idealists are correct. I do believe God wrote this book in such a way that everyone throughout the age of the church age has been able to benefit from this book to help overcome and live through persecution, difficulties, life, and so forth. But I also believe that what he really is referring to here is when the signs appear, that generation will see the end. In other words, this is all going to come quickly. That word soon in the Greek is taku, not taco. Okay, so get, get that right. Taku. And it also, at least half the time in the New Testament, is translated quickly. The CSB translates it quickly. It doesn't say soon, it says quickly. In other words, when all this stuff starts to happen, it's going to happen quickly. And that's what we're to understand. Now, in light of that, I want us to go back to Matthew 24. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've been seeing how Revelation go, corresponds exactly right along with Matthew 24, which is Jesus' view of the end times. And doesn't that make sense that God, the ultimate author of both books, would uh, actually agree with himself. Okay, now I actually want to look at verse 34 first, okay? So Matthew 24, verse 34, he says this. This is after he talked a lot about the end times and this and that. He says, 
Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, some will see that and say, whoa, wait a minute. This generation, you mean the generation Jesus is living in, they're going to see all these things, including Jesus coming back, which is what verse 30 said, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and so forth? Well, if that were the case, if that's what he meant, then he was wrong because Jesus didn't come back in that generation, did he? Okay, But good scholars, and I agree with them, believe that when he says this generation, the word this doesn't mean this generation that that's listening to me now, this generation that sees all these things take place, that generation. In other words, it's going to come quickly within a generation. That brings us to verse 8. This is Jesus' eschatological hermeneutic, hermeneutical principle, okay? That mean, all that means is fancy words for saying this is how, this is a clue on how to understand end time stuff, okay? Here's what he says. Chapter 24, verse 8, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. This is the labor pain principle. What Jesus is saying, and he had mentioned a few things that were going to happen just before that verse, and a few things that were going to happen just after that verse, and what he's saying is these things are the labor pains. Now, labor pain principle, helping us to understand end time stuff. How do labor pains work? Don't, don't answer me, okay. All right. <laughs> Here's what happens, just in case you didn't know. Okay, when a woman's about ready to give birth, all of a sudden she starts having these pains, okay? And they come at first kind of sporadically and not very painful, okay? Just kind of, oh, what was that, okay? But as the time gets to the end, the pains get stronger and stronger, and they get so more intensity, and they get closer and closer together until the baby comes. So pain here, a few hours later, another pain. Then all of a sudden, they're regularly, every hour, every five minutes. You know, it gets, But when it's regular, super intense, and very close together, that's when you know the end. He says, these are the labor pains. These things I've told you, these things that he spoke about, which were, have happened throughout church history, he says, but when they happen all together and they get greater and greater in intensity and closer and closer together, you know you're near the end, okay? Now, here in Matthew 24, he mentions a few things. He mentions natural disasters. He mentions uh, persecution of the church. He mentions a great apostasy. He mentions wars and rumors of wars. I was uh, looking up just the other day. Uh, this is from Open Doors Ministry, 2017, persecution of the church. Among those facing persecution during the reporting period, that's just in 2017, 3,066 Christians were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Our brothers and our sisters, 3,066 in one year. 1,252 were abducted. Nearly 800 churches were defaced and 1,020 Christians were raped or sexually harassed. 
The most significant findings were that Christian women are among the most violated in the world. It may be a way that we haven't seen before, David Curry, the president and CEO, CEO of Open Doors, told Fox News. Curry also cited incidents where sex traffickers received more money for the abducted daughters of pastors compared to other girls. So they get more money for that. These incidents are happening all the time. At least six women every day are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage to a Muslim man under the threat of death for their Christian faith, the study found. The World Watch listed documented over 2,000 such incidents against women, a number that covers only the reported incidents and is estimated to be a fraction of the total who were raped and harassed. That's persecution. It is and has dramatically increased on this planet. Natural disasters. I found this from Forbes magazine, which was interesting. They're actually trying to... Um, in the article trying to downplay it, saying, you know, uh, they, they admit that both, both um, uh, earthquakes and hurricane storms have dramatically increased in intensity and numbers in the last year. But they say, but that's, uh, that doesn't mean it's due to this or that or the other thing. So it's kind of funny how they're, you know, they're, they're obviously not trying to you know, they're not Bible thumpers trying to say, you know, hey, the end time's tomorrow. But they're admitting these things are dramatically increasing. And we've been seeing that as we walk through here. So, so we see this in Matthew 24, mentions of wars, natural disasters, persecution, apostasy will increase. It means people leaving the churches. The book of Revelation also draws our attention to Israel becoming a nation to globalism, the seeking of the world to become one world government with the Antichrist ultimately as the leader of that, and a great, uh, as well as possibly as we've been walking through this book, an Islamic advance joining with the humanist global agenda. And so it seems that we are getting closer. The labor pains are getting more intense and they're getting closer Together, So what does that mean? Um, that's what we want to be aware of. So Jesus is coming soon. When he says that, in light of what he talked about in Matthew 24, he's meaning quickly. When these things happen quickly, then we know it's going to take place soon, the end. Jesus coming back, okay? Now, that's the part I like. You know, when he says here in our passage, the angel said to me, uh, these words are trustworthy and true. Um, uh, verse 7, look, I'm coming soon. As a Christian, I really like that verse, right? I mean, he's coming back soon. It could be really, really soon where we get to see Jesus. I mean, this is, this is incredible good news. The only problem is that seven-year thing that has to happen before that. It's not going to, doesn't seem like much fun. But plenty of opportunity for evangelism, as we've been seeing throughout this book as well. So how do we get ready? Okay, that's what he means by coming soon. How do we get ready for this? The rest of this chapter, we're going to see several things he brings up, but the one we want to talk about today is worship. Worship God alone. That is the context 
of this is this episode with John being stupid. Where he, he almost worships an angel, okay? Now, it doesn't actually say he did it. It says he's about to, and the angel stops him. So that's it, but, you know, absolutely foolish, okay? Worship God alone. You see, throughout the book of Revelation, as you've noticed, worship is central. Yes, it talks about the end times and what's going to happen in Antichrist and all these other things, but the central feature throughout the book we've seen is worship. It actually begins in chapter 4 and 5 with a scene from heaven of of worshiping God with the 24 elders and so forth. So worship is central. By the way, in the Bible, worship is central. It's absolutely critical and important. Now, our passage starts out in verse 6 where we see that God's word is trustworthy. He says, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Why? The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. They're trustworthy and true because God inspired the prophets to write it. Now, notice that's plural, so he's not just talking about the book of Revelation. Yes, he's talking about the book of Revelation. It is trustworthy and true, but the inspiration to the prophets is referring to the whole Bible. God's word is trustworthy and true. You see, pluralism is very, very popular today. Pluralism is the belief that says all religions and modes of worship are valid. That's what the world is saying right now. But Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. So who's right, the world or Jesus? I mean, that's, that's the ultimate question that we have to ask here because that's a pretty big deal. Is it true that all religions and modes of worship are valid, or is it true that only through Jesus worship is valid? So how do you know? Do you just go by your feelings? Because if you just go by your feelings, what if somebody else feels differently than you? You both can't be right, can you? So I just don't feel like that's fair or whatever, you know? So feelings, feelings come and go, by the way. How about majority vote? That's how we f- discover what's true about this subject. Well, 100 years ago, the majority would have voted differently. So how could that be the way you discover what is true? How about going by the evidence? What's the evidence? Is there evidence that this book is true? That's why I wrote The Uniqueness of the Bible, was to show the evidence for this book that this book, the Bible, is absolutely God's word and therefore true. There's evidence for it. And so we can go by that evidence. And Jesus actually died on the cross and rose again from the dead. I think that's pretty good. Pretty good evidence that we can trust that when he says this, this is true. God's word is trustworthy. Now, notice in this, he says, uh, verse 7, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. This is the sixth beatitude 
that's found in the book of Revelation. There are seven beatitudes or blessings that we see. The number seven is very important in the book of Revelation. And so this is the sixth of seven blessings. And this is very similar to the first one. So why don't you turn back to the first one, chapter one, verse three. The first beatitude or blessing in the book of Revelation, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Okay? Blessed are those who read it and who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Similar to what we see here, blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. To Keep the words of this prophecy uh, is to follow what it says as a believer, to keep it, to hold it to heart. That's the person who's going to be blessed. And since we've seen that worship is a central focus of the book of Revelation, and that is what he talks about right after this, that also is included in this. To keep it is to Worship God no matter what. That's our calling. Worship God. Now, as we see this, it's kind of interesting. You would have maybe expected, okay, Jesus is coming back soon, so how do I prepare? You build a bunker. Right? You know what I mean? Or, or whatever. And I'm not saying you shouldn't build a bunker, but, but that's not what he says here, is it? He focuses on the heart. We want to be true worshipers of God no matter what. And in our passage, we see that idolatry is bad. It's not good worship. Because right after verse 8, in verse 8, John, the one who heard and saw these things, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. He said, stop it. He was not politically correct because he didn't mind offending John, telling him, you're doing it bad. Don't do that. Worship God. True worship. So idolatry is bad. Now, if, if we were to take a vote, you know, which doesn't matter, right? I already said that. But if we were to take a vote and raise your hand if you think idolatry is bad, probably everybody would raise their hand, right? But what is idolatry? Now we want to look at what the Bible says, not what our culture says. Because our culture says, well, idolatry is if you like football too much. I, mean, I hear that all the time. I don't know what they're trying to say. Okay, did I show you my socks? Uh, anyway, let me show you what the Bible says idolatry is. So let's, because this is very, very important, let's look at Exodus. This is where it's brought up. Exodus chapter 20, this is the Ten Commandments, verses 3 and following. This is actually the first two commandments And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 
Okay, so we see here two commandments. First, don't have any other gods. So there's only one true God. That's the one you worship, okay? But second, you gotta worship that God properly, and the improper way of worship is using idols, statues, pictures, or whatever, okay? That's what he's saying. Now, some people say that this is all the same thing. This is only one commandment, that in actuality, he's just simply saying, don't have anything else as important to you as God. That is true. That's the first commandment. But the second commandment says, don't worship him with idols, Now, some people say, well, that's only if you're worshiping a false god. With the true god, you can make statues and pictures of him, just not a false god. But let's look at what the Bible says about this. Look at chapter 32, verses 4 and 5 of Exodus. This is the incident where Aaron makes the golden calf for the Israelites because Moses had not come back for a while. And here's what we see here. Verse 4, it says, He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now notice here, most translations translate this, These are your gods. But if you, you probably have a little footnote, and the Christian Standard Bible translates it correctly, in my opinion, it actually should can be translated, this is your God. How many calves are here? One. One calf. These? No, this, right? That's good English. It's good Hebrew, too, by the way. This is your God. In other words, and then he goes on and calls that God Yahweh. Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, Lord, when, when it has all capital letters like that, in Hebrew, that's the personal name, Yahweh. This is Yahweh. He made a statue of Yahweh, and he said, worship the statue. They got rebuked by the, for this, right? They had to end up eating it, didn't they? You know, that's, I mean, that's pretty bad, right? So God was saying, don't do that. That's what he's saying in the book of Revelation. If you're not convinced, look at Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 4, and this is very important. I'll tell you why in just a minute, why I'm taking so much detailed time on this. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19. It says, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like an animal on earth or any birds that fly in the air, etc., 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 okay? The reason why, he says, is because you didn't see any form, so don't make an idol, of me or anything else. So that's important that we catch this, that he's saying because it's an abomination to God to make an idol even if it's of God himself. Because any image would degrade God's infinite glory. And secondly, 
it would suggest God is a part of this world and can be manipulated. And so God says, don't do it. Now let me give you a little church history lesson. The early church, first two centuries, the unbelievers actually accused Christians of being atheists. They accused Christians of being atheists because they had no images. They had no statues. They had no pictures. They had nothing. So they said, you're an atheist because every other religion had all those kinds of things. Then later on, the church started dabbling in idolatry, just like the Old Testament. The, the Israelites dabbled in idolatry by making statues and so forth and using them for worship. Then Leo III, the emperor in the Eastern Empire, comes along. He wants to reach the Muslims. Muslims uh, had just started coming around, so he wanted to reach the Muslims for Christ. And the Muslims accused Leo accused the church of being idolaters. He said, you guys are idolaters. You've got idols. And Leo looked at it, and he said, boy, they're right. So he passed a law in 730 A.D. banishing all idols, okay? This is called the iconoclastic controversy, if you ever want to look it up, you know, for your historical lesson, okay? And back and forth over the years after Leo, a few of the other emperors, they went back and forth on this issue until the empress in 843, she decided, no, we're going back to this idol stuff. And the Feast of Orthodoxy was started where they then decided from then on they were going to use idols. They didn't care. Now, what's really fascinating is, I'm probably going too long, but, uh, but uh, the, um, in Israel, there's this one archaeological site that we see where there's a bunch of places where it looked you could tell there was images but they were wiped off you know that was done right during this time period uh in between 730 and 843 uh, ad because that's when the the controversy took place okay it's a kind of a fascinating little little uh, historical thing there well anyway okay so idolatry is bad that's what he's saying here very very clearly don't do that worship God. Now, I do want to have a positive point of this as well. You know, even though our passage doesn't really give any positive, it just says don't do that. But he does say worship God. Well, how are we supposed to worship God? The Bible once again tells us. Look at John chapter 4, 19 through 24. In John, we see Jesus at the, with the woman at the, at the well. And in John chapter 4, we see this great lesson, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's a Samaritan. She's wanting to worship there in Samaria. And she says the Jews say it's supposed to be done in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. He's kind of rebuking her, isn't she? Isn't he? You worship what you don't know. That's, once again, not very politically correct to tell someone that kind of thing. But Jesus did it. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Jews had it right, the Samaritans had it wrong. That's what he's saying there, okay? But... 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So a time coming under the new covenant, things are going to change. No longer sacrifices in Jerusalem. It's going to be everywhere, but we're going to worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. In the spirit means from the heart and led by the Holy Spirit. Not ritual, just going through the motions. From the heart and led by the Holy Spirit. Revelation started in chapter 110, speaking of how John, it says, it says, on the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. So the Lord's day, that's Sunday. He was clearly worshiping on Sunday, and he was in the Spirit And then he heard the voice of the Lord, and that's how the book of Revelation started, okay? So from the heart, led by the Holy Spirit. But notice it's in the Spirit and in truth. So it's not just how you feel, but how does it correspond with the New Testament and what it says about worship, okay? So... uh, Worship the true God the way he wants to be worshipped. In the New Testament, a few verses that we want to look up. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Very, very simple verse, but this is the early church. This is what they focused on. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The apostles' teaching, which we have recorded in the New Testament, so to the New Testament, and to fellowship, very, very important, to the breaking of bread, that would be the sacraments, uh, Lord's Supper and baptism, and to prayer. So that's their focus in worship. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. This puts this together with this end times emphasis of the book of Revelation. Look at what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As we see the day approaching, now can you see the day approaching? He assumes you can. Why, how? By going by the signs and figuring out. Now, not the exact day, but the times. When you see the times approaching, when it's looking like the end is near, especially then, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Episunagogoge is the Greek word. Don't you love that? Okay, did you hear the word synagogue in it, though? Okay, it's the gathering of God's people. This is referring to meeting together for worship. And the New Testament, they started immediately in the book of Acts, gathering together on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week from house to house in smaller groups. That was what they were devoted to. They were dedicated to. And he says, especially as you see the day coming, don't forget that, don't neglect that. But in all of this, In the New Testament, as well as the early church, worship was very low on ritual and very high on the Word of God 
and high on hearts gathered together, inflamed with love for Jesus and each other. That's what we're supposed to be about. Now, I I do have one last word, evangelistically. It's also not in this particular verse, but as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, the way we serve, especially in the end time, is reaching out, not building a bunker and hiding, but reaching out and seeking to get as many people uh, saved for Christ as possible because this is a theme of the book of Revelation, the fulfillment of the Great Commission where all the nations will hear his message. And we see, we've seen in the book of Revelation the greatest revival of all time will take place. And, and this is tied in with worship because the more people worshiping God, the better, right? So there we see the focus. So Jesus is coming back soon. I believe the world is falling apart and cannot last a whole lot longer. I'm not predicting dates because Jesus said not to. But Jesus also said we can discern the times. Probably not in the next year or even five years. Who knows? But we dare not get caught off guard. If things progress even more rapidly than they have in the last 10 years, I don't know if you noticed, things have rapidly changed in the last 10 years, dramatically. If you're young, you probably didn't see it. If you're older, you've seen a huge dramatic change. If things progress even more rapidly than that, then uh, it could be very soon. Uh, Very likely, in my opinion, we will see it in our lifetime. I believe also seeker churches, though they mean well, are setting us up for the great falling away, the great apostasy. Uh, Just uh, no emphasis on the meat of God's word because they don't want to offend anyone. We're setting us up for the great apostasy. The rise of Islam and humanism are setting the stage for persecution. So what should we do? Worship and evangelize. Don't compromise the truth. That doesn't help. But don't fear or get mean either. Christians aren't supposed to be mean. Okay? Worship God and share the truth in love as much as possible until Jesus comes back or until we die. That's God's call here. Let's pray. Jesus, we like this part about you coming back soon. It really is thrilling to think that someday we might hear that trumpet and look up and see you in the clouds and get zapped up to you. (laughs) That is absolutely mind-boggling, and we can't wait. But we also see that we need to be prepared, and we need to reach out. And so we don't want to just waste our lives, especially if you're coming back soon. Help us to get our focus, our central focus on you, worshiping you, living and serving you. Everything else is peripheral, even the Vikings. You are everything to us, O Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.